You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. For those of you that follow on a kind of regular basis, um, we took a few weeks off, um, but we did have an amazing episode with our fellow hero, Professor uh, bi- former Bishop um, Reverend N.T. Wright. That was kind of a bucket list for AJ and myself to be able to have time with the man. We had this really set aside time. We got in, we did it, we got out, and it was amazing. One of our most listened to episodes. So if you haven't listened to that episode with um, Tom Wright, go listen to it. It's also on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube um, and look up uh, my name, NJ. Uh, you'll find that episode with Tom Wright. It was cool. It was on Romans, but we asked him about other things as well, ministry. And um, yeah, so go check out that uh, bucket list episode with Tom Wright. It's also on our podcast. But today we're back uh, recording again. And um, the topic uh, for today actually is something I've had a few people bring up to me. And it's um, how the, how do we tell the difference uh, between theological heresy, false teaching, something that is insidious and just plain wrong, and how do we differentiate that from just things that we disagree with theologically related mm. to kind of what we consider secondary topics or just the difference between denominations? In the old days, this would be predestination and free will, or maybe types of communion or types of baptism or eschatology, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So let me give kind of an example to shape our listeners' imagination. I had a pastor come to me. uh, We had a conversation a few years ago, and in town there was this church that was really growing and teaching all kinds of um, bad things and leading uh, their people into those things. And my pastor friend, he saw people leaving his church um, because they wanted to be at this other church because that church has a big following and the pastor must be um, very um, winsome and engaging. And so my pastor friend didn't know what to do and where the line was, whether he should kind of stop people who are leaving and say, hey, listen, I need to warn you, this is a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is a false teacher uh, or kind of relinquishment say, um, okay, there's differences Margins, margins of difference within Christianity, and I'm not going to tell people what to believe, and I'm going to just let them go. And you know, AJ, that's a tough thing because you feel kind of a responsibility, especially as an educated person, seminary educated, to warn people. At the same time, you don't want to make it seem like you have cornered the truth, and you, you know, you are the only wise person in the world. So I kind of call this distinguishing. Uh, heresy from difference. Mm-hmm. Like my my reform friends, I was asked once to apply to a job at a reformed school, and I just said, I'm not reformed. I'm not Calvinistic at all. There's not a Calvinistic bone in my body. But I love I love those friends, like deeply. Um, I work at a Baptist, historic Baptist institution. I'm not Baptist, but I love Baptist deeply. So I know theological difference. I'm okay with it. Probably where I struggle is actually labeling something as heresy. Mm. And so how do you process this? What would you say to somebody if they're saying, what's the test or what's the line that we can distinguish between difference and heresy? Teach us, AJ. 
yeah, come up to the mountain with me, will you? Uh, let's let's talk about this issue of difference versus heresy. It's, it's actually a really important issue because I think, Nijay, anybody that takes their faith seriously <clears throat> will recognize at some level that there are some issues uh, when it relates to uh, theological belief. There are some issues that are, simply put, uh, in or out issues. These are non-negotiable core historic teachings um, that one might call, I, I've been referring in the last few years, uh, been referring to it as what I, I like to call load-bearing theology. Mm. So this is this is the theology that kind of holds the thing up. And yeah, if yeah. if if you if you pull out the wrong piece, it may stay standing for a while, but any earthquake is going to bring it down. So load-bearing theology, you know, we we have to attend to carefully being faithful to protect and guard the the load-bearing stuff while at the same time creating an environment where the color of the carpet can change from time to time and the 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 paint of the home is different and the yeah, furniture yeah. is is different so <clears throat> one one way i like to think about this is is in the new testament right we're we're called to confront um sin but we're not called necessarily to confront opinion and and the difference mm. here is that conf- the confrontation with sin is like you got a friend who is cheating on their spouse and uh living a double life and nobody in their family knows the kids don't know the, the you know the parents don't the, the spouse doesn't know and i mean and and you it became clear to you that this was go- this was going on it is an act of love in an environment like that it's an act of love to pull uh, pull out everything you can to bring a level of healthy exposure for the sake of of healing. But you're not going to have that same zeal and passion if you're disagreeing over the issue of whether you like Dutch Brothers or Starbucks more. Right. Like you there's a love there's a level of difference between those between those two. And so yeah, load-bearing theology is is critical. So I think one interesting way to think about this is to return to uh, the creeds. We did the, I loved our time in the Apostles' Creed, but even mm-hmm. the Nicene Creed, there's a line in the Nicene Creed, 4th century, um, that describes the church with four really important words. That the church, that the Christians believe that the church is one, it is holy, it is Catholic, and it is apostolic. Mm. Yeah. And those four words, which are all drawn out of the soil of Scripture— um, Paul loves the word one in Ephesians, First Corinthians. He loves talking about the one body, the one faith, the one Lord, one baptism, that we believe in one church. Actually, a, a really good sign that a church is heretical is if it is a church that claims it's the only church. Yeah. Um, it actually it remo- it removes the oneness of the church because you are now isolating yeah, yourself totally. against the rest. Um, so that you're one, that you're holy, that is you're different than the world, you're set apart. You, there's an element of character that the church mm. is Catholic and not Roman Catholic. The text never says Roman Catholic, but the, the idea of Catholic <laughs> in the sense in the sense that we believe in the global church. We don't just believe mm-hmm. in the in the church that is here in my neighborhood, but the church throughout history. But that last one is, the, I think, the most important one. It is apostolic. Now, what does that mean? In that it's apostolic. Protestants have a unique perspective on apostolic. We, you know, a Protestant would say that the church is apostolic in the sense that it is a faithful witness yeah. 
to what the earliest apostles taught about Jesus. Matthew, mm-hmm. Mark, Luke, John, the, the earliest, you know, first generation that we are faithful witnesses to that and hold uh, an, a, 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 with a sense of clarity and passion to the teachings of the apostles. And so if, if for example, if, if I'm a part of a church that um, just sort of, you know, looks at the topic, say, for example, of sexuality and says, um, you know, we, I'm going to do away, we're going to do away with what the apostles taught about sexuality, and we're going to do away with what 2,000 years of history have taught on sexuality, largely because we live in a moment in time where it's just uncomfortable to deal with. Well, I would say that's a pretty darn trajectory. That's a dangerous trajectory that is yeah. undermining your apost- your apostolicity, that you are just saying, mm-hmm. we we know better than the apostles did. So, so no, no, again, having a clear sense, this is why reading the Gospels is so important for us, is to be able to discern what the apostles deem to be the most critical things versus what we have made the most critical thing. Yeah, sometimes I hear the language of secondary issues. You know, it's not a salvation issue or it's not in the creeds. And I get that, like, for example, forms of communion, you know, that sort of thing, you know, whether it's a wafer or bread or whether Mm -hmm. it's grape juice or wine, like, I, I, I'm okay with the differences there, you know, by conviction and by study of scripture. But I don't like when people say, oh, as long as it's a secondary issue, it doesn't really matter what people yeah. think. The reason I, I think that's that should be revisited is because the way people study those secondary issues says something about how they read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm okay with there being differences in secondary issues, but how they arrive at those differences matters a lot. I yes. can, I think yeah. you've kind of pointed that out. If it's kind of flippant and if it's a dismissal of scripture or kind of a, you know, a kind of turning away from uh, biblical teaching, that's obviously wrong, yeah. even if it's a quote unquote secondary issue. But sometimes it's, you know, a really carefully studied uh, phenomenon and um, I, I guess, tell me what you think, but, you know, when, when people say, oh, there's a new, you know, approach to this, you know, I want to say, I want to know to what degree the, the group or the person has studied the issue in depth, in community, with humility, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and come to kind of a studied position versus kind of a flippant, knee-jerk sort of position um, even if it's kind of a newer sort of thing. So, you know, let's use the, the example of, you know, annihilationism, the idea that um, maybe hell isn't a place, but it's this, it's this idea that people, you know, who are condemned will kind of fade into non-existence. They'll be annihilated. Um, you can kind of look at the patristic era and say, oh, there may have been some people that thought that. But in the biblical times, I mean, you had a pretty solid Sheol and you had a pretty solid mm-hmm. Hades. You know, these were places. And then you have scripture texts talk about, you know, suffering for a long time or torment or eternal or whatever it is. And I have different ways right. that I've tried to manage that or think about it. But, you know, when John Stott first kind of came out and and said that this is where he was, uh, I took that seriously because of who he is, who he mm. is as a thoughtful, mature, wise, carefully studying scripture and theology kind of person. It mattered, uh, even though it's a quote unquote secondary issue, it mattered who 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 is making that claim, what the reputation is. Um, you know, take Tim Keller, um, you know, 
I think maybe five, 10 years ago, he um, came forward and said that, that he believed in a form of evolution. I don't remember all the details, but he wanted to specifically say that you didn't have to be a six day creationist in order to be faithful to scripture and, uh, and, and theology. And I think it matters who, who said that someone as, you know, widely respected as Keller, who's had, you know, kind of a lifelong pastoral ministry. Um, do you think uh, it matters who's, who's arriving at these positions and how? Well, certainly. I mean, we're, we're doing a whole podcast called Slow Theology. Our, we're inviting you know, our listener to embrace the slow, meditative road to not make quick, knee-jerk reactions based out of emotion or reaction. So, no no question. There's a level of—let let me actually say it this way, Nijay. I think it does not—let me rephrase. Anybody— can believe in first level issues. That is the core stuff. The, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, uh, the Trinity, right. the high view of scripture. You know who else believes those things? We're told in James that the demons believe these things. Yeah, the demons. Even, even the demonic powers have a high understanding of orthodoxy, of first level things. The demons always come out in the secondary issues. That's actually where we develop our most, most of our character. Mm. There's a principle in religious studies that goes something like this. Religious people tend to have the most ire and hatred for religious people that are just barely different than themselves. Yeah. There are jokes like, along those lines. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, like, and, and people that are totally different, we can have respect for it because they're not even in the same category. Yeah. Uh, but people that are away. just so close, it's like, oh, those, those, those evil people that have a minutia of a difference in their angelology and understanding of the doctrine of sin. So it it actually takes a tremendous amount of character in in the secondary issues. That's usually where we we have to work out our our patience, our kindness, uh, and and our and our and our mercy. Anybody can orthodoxy is not hard to come to. It's the secondary issues that are um, that are that are that are often the most difficult. Um, so you know, <clears throat> an interesting way to think about this would be. Um, um, we play Monopoly in our home, uh, not too often because I don't like it. But when we do play it, um, <laughs> when we do play it, um, it lasts too long, and I always lose, um, unless yeah. <laughs> I'm manipulative. Because in my family, I know how to emotionally manipulate everybody to get what I want. Wow! Um, so, but I never, w- I never win. I'm almost never winning, which is which is really hard. So when my wife and when Quinn and I got married, um, we both came to our blessed union having very different understandings of Monopoly and her family growing up always had a very different approach towards free parking. And my family had a very different approach, which was you always put a bunch of money in free the free parking. Hers was like free parking's, you know, it's nothing. It's a, it's a, it's a lie. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a cheat. Um, and we, we disagreed over the house rules of, you know, what to do with the, the free parking. Yeah, sounds we didn't, familiar. we didn't disagree on like the rules of the game. We disagreed over the things that the rules don't state. Yes. And 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 those those are the areas you know in in theology and biblical studies. You know, a great example of this would be women in ministry. Nija, you and I are both uh, egalitarians and believe in the mm-hmm. full inclusion of women at every level in the life of the church. And I take that position not lightly. I don't take it because I'm a part of an attractional church. I don't take it because I've subsumed myself to culture. 
I have spent a long time reading the Bible and have come to the conclusion that Scripture creates space for the interpretive pattern that I have. But there can easily be an arrogance, as an egalitarian, a sort of egalitarian arrogance that says, like, we've arrived at this position, so anyone that thinks differently is outside outside the box. Right. When in reality, as much as I am a committed egalitarian, Nijay, I have dear friends that are not, who love Jesus yeah. with all their heart yeah. and have a high view of Scripture. And I, so what I don't want to do, and what none of us want to do, is take what are often second-level issues and become prideful in those issues. Right. Um, pride, almost always for the Christian, pride is almost always built in secondary issues and and the, yeah. the, the arrogance towards the other side. So when you say, how do we do it? We've got to do it for the right reason. And we're not doing it to win an argument. We're doing it because we want to be faithful to the living God and in Scripture as best as we can. And what are your, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, the, the secondary thing, you know, it's it's tough. You know, I think what you're saying resonates because people like you and me who, you know, who are in this professionally, we have such passion about what we believe. And then it's hard for people to not agree with you, right? Yeah. Like students and even student papers. I had a student once say, don't penalize me for disagreeing with you. He said that in the paper. And uh, I said, I didn't. I didn't penalize you for disagreeing. I penalize you for writing a terrible paper. Mm. I wrote that in a nice way. But, um, you know, I think there is that fear of, you know, I think we, ha- we have our sens- sensitivity level very high. Let's put it that way. Our mm. sensitivity level is very high because of the meaningfulness of this. But let, let me throw this, this question at you. Um, you know, it, it was funny when we wrote, you know, this article that is, you know, infamous for those that listen to this podcast. I was talking to a friend about, my concerns that everybody in the world uh, would know what, what you know what we've done and how much people <laughs> didn't like it, and he told me, you know, Nijay, you know, fifty years ago, if you wrote a magazine article, you wouldn't know what people thought about it because you wouldn't know. Yeah. Uh, you would maybe get a handwritten letter from you know, you know, Billy Graham or something, but you just wouldn't know. Uh, and now because of social, we did not get a letter from Billy Graham, by the way, we did not no, receive we a letter didn't. or Franklin. No. I'm surprised no. we didn't get one from Franklin. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, now with kind of the global world that we live in, I go on social media, my wife and I have different feeds. My feed is all theologians and scholars fighting basically. And a little bit of <laughs> soccer and some food in there somewhere. I'm seeing theological battles all of the time. Yes. And I'm seeing people say crazy things and wrong things all of the time. And I got I got to be honest with you, it, it makes me anxious. It makes me anxious because I don't like there to be wrongness and disharmony in the world. Some people, I know some people, it doesn't bother them. They just scroll right past it or they're not on social media or it just doesn't bother them. The kind of cacophony of fighting and disagreement on social media, which is, you know, now very normal. Um, how do you, how do you handle that? I know you're not on social media as much as I am, but I'm sure with the books you read and the things you encounter, you're constantly running into things that are on a level of very alarming theologically Mm. to somewhat problematic to just difference, right? How do you handle that? Because you can't put out every single fire in the world. I guess that's my, when I look in the mirror, that's my concern is I want to solve every problem, put out every fire. How do I balance responsibility and, and surrender? 
Yeah, I, I put the question back back on onto you, but I would say the, the most helpful thing for me, um, which is apropos with our with the theme of what we're talking about in our podcast in general, is that the faster I respond to what mm. I perceive to be theological problems, um, the dumber I usually turn out uh, responding, um, and that is to say that um, usually when my response to a particular issue um, is birthed out of prayer and kindness and a deep love for God, I tend to respond differently. Like for example, right now, actually right now, this is going on right now. Um, I'm actually quietly really caught up with, uh, with a, with a particular theological debate that's happening. I'm not even going to name it. It's, it's not even <laughs> worth naming. Um, but it's being written about a great deal. Now, a lot of people are talking about it and I think it's a massive load bearing issue. And most people do not. Mm. And I am, uh, I've been sitting on this for like three months, four months, weighing, do I have a responsibility as a, as a public thinker to, to write something on this and respond? Because I think that it is so important for the history of the church. Um, I think it's important for American evangelicalism. I think it's important for God's people globally. I think it's wildly important. Yeah. And I, it has, it has, it has required me to, really take slowly my motivations for wanting to respond. Do I want to respond because I'm looking forward to being seen as intellectually and smart, advanced and and theologically, you know, winsome? Am I wanting yeah. to respond because I want to garner power? Or do do I have a response that can be birthed out of goodness gracious? I love this person, I love this church. And I love God, and I have a responsibility to do something about this. In general, responding meditatively to these sorts of issues helps us respond in the right way. How, yeah. For you, I mean, do, do you simultaneously have any tips of the trade for how to respond to the difference between difference and heresy? And when you see heresy, do you, do you respond? Sure. Yeah. What have you learned? Sure. Yeah, I've learned so much because I've done it the wrong way in the past where I've I've been too quick to speak and too quick to try to gain a platform so that I could get attention for, you know, calling out things. There is this cathartic experience of going on social media and lambasting someone or something and having a bunch of your friends like what you said. Like it feels, it actually feels right. Yeah, that's right. And everything within us says, yeah, that was the right thing to do. But the accumulation of that means that social media is just a really, really negative space. And the fact that we just can't do it all the time. So I've come to kind of process this with a few things. And and for those listening, take, take it or leave it. Um, one thing I've learned, you and I have some something really special in common, which we didn't I didn't know about until about a week ago, <laughs> and that we be, we both been writing on the subject of love and desire. Mm, mm, you yeah. have a book, which is amazing, by the way, coming out called Gift of Thorns. And I have a book coming out in a couple of years about Paul's theology of love. And one thing that I've that's left an impact on me is the fact that social media turns the people and things we're against into nameless entities that aren't real people. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we don't treat them as people. We treat them as monsters to, to slay. 
Um, and the way that Paul and Jesus wanted us to see our enemies is as people. Um, and, and then once you see them as people, the calling is to love those people. Yes. And that is crazy. Like I was just talking with a friend yesterday, and I think the absolute most difficult teaching in the entire Bible is love your enemies. It's the absolute mm-hmm. most impossible thing for us to do as humans because everything within us wants to hate our enemies. Yeah. So it's not even fathomable to me apart from what Jesus did for us to be able to say so-and-so is a damn dirty sinner. They're, they say horrible things. They do horrible things. But I want God's best for them. Yeah. I want the, I want the sun to shine on them. I want the vivifying rain to rain down on them. Like it's crazy. So do we apply that mentality when we are scrolling through? Most of the time we aren't. So number one is um love is the number one thing we're called to. It's not justice, it's not righteousness, it's not truth telling. All those things are important. All those things should come in the train. Uh, of love. But actually the first thing is love. Go read your Bible. It's all over the place. Yes. Um, second thing I would say is the Apostle Paul runs into this all the time when he's dealing with fires that he should have to put out or false teachers or whatever. And I think one of his key statements that he gives to the Romans and, and other Christians is, leave judgment to the one who judges justly. God's really good at judgment. He's way better at judgment than we are. So leave judgment to God. And that that has actually freed me up from feeling like I have to step in and say something all the time. Um, it really, it really reminds me that I'm not God. <laughs> and there's there's relief in that. There's relief. Uh a third thing I'd want to say is because we live in this global world and there are too many problems for me to solve, I have changed my ministry over the last probably five years away from correcting everybody else in the world and putting all of that energy as much as I can into advocating and being for what I think is good Mm. rather than being against what I think is bad. And I think there's times where I need to pick it and do a sit in and protest and call out whatever. But I think the majority of my energy is focused on what I want to model because I think in the world we live in now, there's not two options. There's a bazillion options. And I can't negate every option. What I can do is wave a flag and say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. And that yeah. has to have humility. It has to have grace. And the last thing I'll say is you and I you know, both consider ourselves public-facing scholars, but we also have a ministry with our small group of students. Um, I remember talking with some leaders at the Bible Project and um, some of actually our Northern students and graduates uh, work at the Bible Project. And it's kind of funny to sit with, you know, a Tim Mackey or John Collins uh, or some of the other staff and they're thinking how to reach billions. They're actually imagining how do we reach billions? And in my job at Northern, I'm thinking, how do I reach 50 people? (laughs) Right. How do I reach 50 people? But we're in different parts of the system, right? And so I've actually been spending more and more time thinking, I really just want to focus on shaping my students and leaving an impact on them. That doesn't mean I don't tweet, although I do far less than I used to. I only tweet about 2% of what I used to. 
Um, but it does mean that um, even though we're connected to everybody all the time, I'm finding more significance and richness in focusing on my seminary community. Yes. Yep. Is Now, I feel like you've gone through a similar journey with the last five, 10 years for yourself. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as well? Do you resonate with what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. Um, to your second point, by the way, Nijay, loved the, the one that I loved the most out of your, your three there was, was the idea of embracing your call to model the good rather than spending your time dismantling the bad. That doesn't take away from the importance right. of of theological correction and, mm-hmm. and, and, and tackling, you know, Paul, for heaven's sake, we know he wrote whole letters to deal with major, you know, issues in the early church. Um, but yeah, I love this, this line from Walter Hollenweger. He's kind of this, um, he, w- he was one of the first, broadly one of the first academics to write on uh, Pentecostalism and charismatic movements. I just finished writing an article on his, on his theology and one of his most repeated maxims, it was in most of his talks, most of his lectures, most of his sermons that he would preach, a phenomenal preacher, um, world-class theologian, really interesting character. But one of his most repeated maxims was he always would say that uh, the best uh, the best critique of the bad is the practice of the good. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, it, and it's, it's to, to your point about um, doing our best to give our, our life's energy to cultivating the right trees rather than cutting everybody else's down. Um, yeah. yeah, no, the last five years, I, I mean, I hear, I hear you say uh, numbers in, in the billions and there's a part of anybody's soul that, that needs to recognize an envy that comes out of that, of wishing, gosh, mm-hmm. I, I wish I could. But that's not the call God has on my life and it's not the call God has on your life embracing the small. I mean, I have one class uh, with 20 students who have never read the Bible, who are reading the Bible for the very first time. And those 20 people need to be my unreached people group. And I need Mm -hmm. to be content with that 20. And if I'm not content with that 20, then I certainly can't handle any more than that. Um, Yeah. So I want to, Nije, close with maybe an image from the Garden of Eden. Yeah. The difference between difference, godly difference, or good difference mm-hmm. and heresy mm-hmm. uh, in the garden of Eden, Genesis two and Genesis three to me offer the two kind of paradigms for these, these true, these two, um, the man and the woman, when they're created, they're different. Uh, their bodies are different. Uh, their, you know, emotions are different. Their personalities are different. God created the man and the woman to be fundamentally different from one another in their good and glorious way. Diversity in that sense is God's idea. God created a world of difference where difference is good, it is intended, and it's not a mistake. And, and so that difference is, 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 is you know, in a, in a sense, the, the model of the body of Christ. There's difference in the body. Yet there's a difference between that and the next chapter when the man and the woman listen to the serpent. And uh, when they do listen to the serpent, which I guess you could call it heresy or whatever it is, but they chose to listen to the serpent over God. Right. And their very first move, the man and the woman, their very first move after listening to the serpent, ironically, is they cover themselves with fig leaves. They cover their differences. Mm. Yeah. And, and the, this, is, this is humanity's first move, is to do away with the difference that God had created. Mm. And, and ultimately, you know, when, when we think about um, 
the the world that Satan wants to rule. It's a world of sameness. It's a world without difference where every single person looks, acts, and is the same. God created a world of difference where in, in the kingdom, in the, in the garden, we are free to be the person God has called us to be as long as it's in the boundaries of what God has said. There's a difference between godly difference and mm-hmm. uh, listening to the serpent and disobedience. And it, it takes the Holy Spirit to be able to discern the difference between those two. And as we do in a world with, uh, with a lot of ungodly difference, would it be that we have wisdom to know the difference between the two? Nije, I always love talking to you. God's grace and peace yeah. uh, over your day. Thanks for taking time to have this conversation. Amen and amen.